You are listening to the official Sasta podcast with your host, Harry Stebbings. It would be great to see you behind the scenes here at Sasta on Instagram. You can find me on at hstebbings1996 with two Bs, and I'd love to see you there, where you can also direct message me with feedback and suggestions for the show. Speaking of the show today, I'm thrilled to welcome our guest, Ryan Williams. Now, Ryan is the founder of Sales Collider, the organization that helps technical founders jumpstart sales. Ryan got his start as the first sales manager at AdRoll, where he grew the team from three to 32 reps in just eight months, a team that was responsible for ARR growing from $4 million to $58 million in under two years. Ryan then became an advisor to the early team at InVision, where he coached both CEO and sales reps to close the first dozen enterprise deals. Then, his last stop before founding Sales Collider, he was VP of Sales at Lead Genius, where he grew enterprise sales by over 400% and added clients such as eBay, IBM, and Google, just to name a few. Ryan's also an entrepreneur in residence at 500 Startups and a mentor with first round capital. I'd also have to say a big thank you to prior guest Lars Nilsson for the intro to Ryan today. I really do so appreciate that. But before we dive into the show today, let's face it, email gets messy and complicated, especially with Google groups and distribution lists. Front, the first shared inbox for Teams, makes it easy to manage your company's info at and help at email addresses. With Front, Teams get back to customers faster with easy internal collaboration and clear owners so there's no confusion. Front also works with Twitter, Facebook, Twilio, SMS, and live chat, so your team manages everything in one place and never misses a message again. Today, companies such as Shopify, HubSpot, General Assembly, and Y Combinator all use Front to help their teams work better together, and you can sign up for a free trial today at frontapp.com. And thanks to my friends at WePay, let me introduce you to another very cool player in SaaS, Jotform. Jotform offers an easy-to-use online form builder for every business. People use the platform's drag-and-drop creation tool to develop gorgeous forms fast. Forms used to generate leads, conduct surveys, register guests, collect order payments, and more. It also offers thousands of form templates and themes too, and you can learn more at jotform.com. And to learn how you can grow your revenue with integrated payments, just like Jotform did, visit wepay.com forward slash sasta, and wepay's got this incredible cheat sheet on how to get started with platform payments. Again, that's wepay.com forward slash sasta. But that's quite enough from me, so I'm now very excited to hand over to Ryan Williams, founder at Sales Collider. Good. That's perfect. Okay, I think we're warmed up. Ryan, it's absolutely fantastic to have you on the show today. A big hand to the main man, Lars Nilsson, for the intro. But thank you so much for joining me today, Ryan. Yeah, thanks for having me, man. I appreciate that. And obviously, I appreciate Lars for putting us two together. Isn't he such a special man? But I want to kick off today with a little about you and how you made your way into the world of SaaS and sales more specifically. Well, I think like many people in sales, I joined a startup sales team thinking I was on a brief stopover on my way to marketing, which is not how it's turned out. But my route to actually get to that point was not so typical. I started my career as a professional fundraiser, working for charities like Boys and Girls Clubs and United Way and Outward Bound. And it was a job that I absolutely loved. It was a great way to start my career. And over the course of about six years, I raised about $15 million a year for Boys and Girls Club of Chicago, which was basically, it was one of the best things that I think I've done in my career. But realizing that I didn't have much tech in my life, my friends encouraged me to move out to San Francisco. So I came out to the Bay Area in 2008 looking for tech. And boy, did I get what I asked for. And after a few initial jobs, marketing, operations, I worked in an ad agency for a little bit. I joined AdRoll as part of their first sales class. So the 
company was doing about half a million in ARR, and I got to basically build my own book of business as a sales professional. And that was probably one of the top jobs I've ever had. Is just being there with a very lonely telephone and uh, and computer, trying to figure out who would buy from me first. I dive in and ask, what were the key yeah. learnings from that ad role scaling experience? As you said, half a million in ARR to the incredible heights they achieved. What were yeah. some key learnings for you from seeing that scaling? Well, I told a friend at the time, I was like, this job is either going to go really well because I'm going to learn how to do it myself and come up from nothing, or I'm going to fail and need a new job in three weeks. What I discovered was uh, AdRoll had released their product just a few months before Google released Google Remarketing. And so I went home and I actually told my girlfriend that I was living at the time, who's now my wife, I said, hey, look, Google released the same product and I'm going to have to quit this job or we're going to get crushed. And she said, why don't you just stick it out and learn and see what you learn? And what happened was Google started educating the market for us. And AdRoll ended up basically, instead of going to market with just retargeting, it was we're doing cross-network retargeting, the ability to show display ads across any ad network uh, rather than Google just having just the Google display network. And so that learning alone, which is like, even if you feel like you're about to be crushed, you probably have one advantage that you just don't know about. And you need to kind of explore that with your customers to figure out what they really would be most interested in and, and build for that. And I think that was the story. So I joined about half a million ARR. And then five years later, I left and they were doing $750,000 every day, which was just amazing. So somewhere in the middle of all that, I was a first sales manager and I built a team from zero to about 32 people in eight months. And even though that team scattered around and opened up offices in Dublin and went went off to London and did other things, built teams in New York, that group of people did $58 million in ARR 22 months later from the date they started. And so I got to see the inside of the rocket ship and it was just, it was awesome. It was probably the best thing I've ever done. I mean, I think that's a big hand to the girlfriend for that suggestion, but I do want to break the interview today up into... (laughs) Now the wife. Now the wife. I mean, congratulations. Um, I'm very relieved to... I'm relieved to hear that one. <laughs> With advice like that, we got to keep her on the team, you know, for sure. And uh, she's been the best thing for my career. I do want to break the interview up today into a couple of different segments, being first the structuring of sales teams. You mentioned that your own structuring of the Adderall sales team, then the structuring of the deals themselves, and then finish on your recent global trip and some learnings from it. How does that sound? That sounds good. So starting <clears throat> on the team itself, the VP of sales is the front man of the sales engine. However, 70% supposedly of them fail when they join an early stage startup. I want to start on a little bit of causation. Why do we see such a high rate of failure for these VPs of sales? You know, I think there's a couple things, but I think the main reason we see that, because the VP of sales is being brought in as a catch-all solution to a lot of other revenue problems too. And so I think a lot of startups will say, all right, we just need a VP of sales and then it'll be fine. And then typically once they hire that VP, they set them off in a corner of the office and say, hey, just go solve the revenue issue. We're going to do the smart kid stuff over here. And typically, Typically, they either do that or the opposite is true, where the VP comes in and says, I'm going to learn about every part of this business. I'm going to go to all the product meetings, go to all the engineering meetings, and go to everything. And they spread themselves so thin, which is basically that's the same problem that a lot of first-time AEs have, too. And so it's it's got to be a balance of the two. But whether you're the master of none and doing kind of everything all at once or you're just over-siloed, I think the companies that are losing these VPs quickly are, are the ones that have actually hired that VP to scale prematurely. Speaking of kind of pre- prematurely there. When is the right time then? When's that inflection point where you really do need to bring on that VP of sales? Uh, I think the inflection point is when when the founder figures out many of the same elements of the VP of sales job, right? Like I, I hear founders who talk about how they're doing product, they're doing sales, they're doing operations, they're doing everything. And they go, oh, I'm not doing it any of those things really well. So I'm going to bring someone in to kind of backfill 
that piece of the job. But the VP of sales job is not just selling. It's actually four or five parts to that job, including hiring and mentorship, including demand gen a lot of times. And so when the founder can do several of the elements of VP of sales without handing it off, you know, so that's like they've sold a few deals, they've identified the ideal customer profile, they're maybe managing one or two SDRs or maybe a few AEs, then that's the right time to go ahead and say, okay, I've got a really good sense of what it takes. And now they know what type of VP they need. The companies who don't know exactly who they're selling to, they bring in a VP and they say, oh, you know, here's a VP who did awesome stuff at Google, which may be a great fit for you. But if they're coming in from a really big company, then they better have domain experience in what you're doing. At AdRoll, our VP of sales came from Google. He was running Google North America. A guy named Shresh Khanna, you should definitely have him on the show and tell his side of the AdRoll story. But, you know, he knew that his experience was in the domain. And so stepping from big company to little company was a lot easier. Whereas the companies go, oh, I'm just going to hire a Google guy. And then we're going to go over here and sell heavy truck machinery. It's like, that's never going to work because they just don't have that experience. And so when the founder can do all the different roles and they go, okay, I know who I need. I know what it looks like. And and then that, that interview process should be a lot easier. I'm really pleased you said there about the Google experience and that very trusted brand. Because often the question I get from early stage founders is what's the right profile for my first VP of sales? Is it always that very certified Google, Facebook employee? Or can it be the aspiring jack of all trades? Well, I think, I mean, this can be such a hard role, man. Like, I don't think it's fair to say that it's just one typical type of person is perfect. So my core advice is that young companies, they bring in a leader that they see as a peer to the executive team, not just somebody who's a contract killer with a revenue number, that somebody that's actually going to like be a part of that executive team and help figure out the challenges holistically. So that if there is a pivot into a different market tier, a different segment, different geography, that they're making that decision together. And so whatever that means to you as a founder in terms of how having this revenue leader as a peer to your executive team, then I think that's what you're looking for. More than the jack of all trade or more than the aspiring grow into the job. There are seven or 10 types of VPs of sales out there. But I think really it's about, are they a part of that team, that core team? I spoke to a Valley VC the other day who said, with regards to early stage startups, actually, you have to go for that young aspiring jack of all trades. Because quite frankly, as an aspiring early stage startup, you don't have the funds to pay for a quality certified sales leader from one of the big companies. Would you agree with that? Well, I think I would agree with that in some cases. If the founder is able to do sales and they're able to get really comfortable selling and they can grow the company. Like I was working with a company the other day that has grown to just under 5 million ARR without a VP of sales and the CEO is selling. In that case, that CEO is going to grow the team and grow the revenue big enough that they will be able to go hire a real hitter when the time is right. So if the founder is going to do it themselves, then that jack of all trade is going to do a different function for them. So having the like young, aspiring, hungry, all startups should have those in, in every role. But the true VP of sales, like knowing what that job is, like I think your Valley VC friend is, is somebody who is thinking about a picture of here's somebody who's run a hundred person team who can do, you know, X amount of millions in ARR themselves. And yeah, that's absolutely true. Startups are never going to afford that person. If they do, I mean, what an expensive experiment if you bring that person into a 10 person company. And so if you need a, a jack of all trades to help you in terms of managing those kind of four or five core VP of sales jobs as you figure it out, figure out the market, figure out the sales process, figure out what the customer needs are, get customers on that don't churn, that instead they, they renew and they increase their billings. Do that for a little while. You know, I'd say do that for at least the full length of two sales cycles if you can. Like if your sales cycle is nine months, it might be 18 months where you're running sales to figure it out. The question is just whether or not your economics allow you to do that. But that's the best way to run the experiment. Speaking of kind of the founder running sales there, I speak to a lot of engineering led founders who were maybe interviewing sales reps and VP 
ease of sales isn't their strength. What are the core foundations you think that they should really utilize and ask when assessing the strength of a VP candidate? Oh man, I am so glad you asked. This leads me to my favorite question that you can use either for recruiting VPs of sales or even recruiting AEs if you're a sales manager. I would love to ask interviewees about a time that they gave someone bad news, right? You're going to ask them about their deals. You're going to ask them about their clients. You're going to learn about their book of business and what they're doing. But if you say, all right, great. Now tell me about a time that you had to give one of those clients bad news. You're going to get a peek into their values. And I think values is the most important part of the sales job. Like honestly, and, and this may go against what a lot of people will say about the sales role, but I think that if you've got you know someone who's selling, who's consistent with the company values and consistent with the founder's values, then the, the next thing is like, they need to know how to hire. They need to know how to bring in great ease. Jason lays a lot of this stuff out in your blog, but values is where it starts, man. Like if you've got alignment there, then at least you know that when things get hard, you're going to agree on how you handle a difficult customer, how you deal with a refund, how you deal with a discount. So other, other factors that you just can't interview for any other way. So what answer would satisfy you then with that question? Hey, I, I handled it radically transparently upfront the minute I found out. What would please you when answering that question? Well, I'm looking to find out if somebody has tried to get away with something. Hey, you know what? This was a situation. This is what the client wanted. But here's how I spun the client around to think that they were getting what they wanted when they weren't. When their inventory didn't run or when they didn't get the, the access on the dates they needed, things like that. And people who are kind of spinning and manipulative, I think that goes against what kind of that early sales experiment needs to look like at companies because that kind of early sales team is about how do we learn the most from our clients, not how do we mislead them into buying something that's not ready. I'm intrigued. So now we've got this perfect VP of sales candidate. The other common question is comp for the first VPs. How do you think about comp for the first VPs of sales and kind of associated elements like guaranteed draw? Yeah. So my client base in my consulting businesses, mostly that's the early stage, just pre-series A or just after pre-series A. And what I tell them is, again, it comes down to values. So when you're going to hire, if you're aligned on values as a first kind of check mark, great. Then the next piece is like, what is the incentive that you want to set up, right? Like, do you want that VP coming in and closing X amount of deals on their own? So that's a different comp package than someone who's coming in and trying to work with your product team to go close your first five beta customers. So the first example being like, hey, go out and just close these deals, that's going to be per commission. The latter example might be a long-term draw, right? Somebody who can come and knows how to sell a product, knows how to package it up. I mean, you're really asking that VP of sales to come in and do some product marketing type stuff. And if that's the case, then you absolutely should pay that person on a draw. And, and if you can't afford that, then you bring that person in as a peer in like one of the other executive roles that's mostly you know equity. And that's a bigger chunk of equity for that early stage company. If the founder can't figure out what that packaging on their own, because that salesperson is going to go out and interview customers, which traditionally is a product person's job. Going to go interview customers, figure out what the packaging, figure out what the pricing is. They're doing a lot of things other than hiring and selling. No, absolutely. I, I am intrigued though. If we then progress one step further along, we've got the comp package nailed. Now we've aligned it to their incentives. What do they, the founders, need to set and prepare to increase the chances of the VP success coming into the role? I think if you're going to try to pad that role for being successful, again, it comes down to like, can you speak to the fundamentals of how your product is sold? Do you know who you're selling to? Do you know how it's being sold? You know, I, I ask people all the time, I say, hey, who do you sell to? How do you sell it? And when that conversation is among two people who are in sales, it's really a matter of fact. They say, oh, my ideal customer is this, 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 and they name out five traits. And then they tell you that kind of one silver bullet of like, hey, the best person for me to talk to is somebody who uh, just had this life event or just had the security risk. And then, then that's when I want to be introduced because we tell each other all the time, like our referrals need to be this exact person because it's a waste of time 
for one sales rep to refer another sales rep, a client who's not ready, right? But when you talk to a founder and you say, okay, who's your ideal customer? They talk around it for a while about how everybody can use the product and they're building for a big market because they're used to that as a fundraising question of like, are you building for a big enough market? Instead of who is the specific person who could buy this on Tuesday if you met them? And so if you're going to pad the VP of sales job for success, the founder needs to be able to speak to that, know exactly why that's the right customer, and then bring in the VP who aligns with being able to sell that customer. Either they know about that product, they know about that industry, or they know about that role because they sold something else to that same persona, those types of things, right? So that's that's around ideal customer. And the second is, you know, when I talk to early stage founders and I say, what's your sales process? They can all talk about what the process is of winning a deal, but none of them have written it down. Like 99% of not writing this down, right? So I work with clients on a thing we call the revenue roadmap, where we basically build out a roadmap for revenue the same way you'd build out a product roadmap. And you have, what are you selling? Who are you selling it to? What is the process? And we document all that. And then you figure out like, what are the roles that you need to sell that? A lot of times founders figure out they don't need the VP of sales right away. Instead, they can do some of those roles. And then when they bring someone in, they're bringing them in and saying, these are the five customers that all look alike, that all close the same way. Let's scale this up. Yeah, no, absolutely. I love the element of documenting and forming that kind of structure and framework. So now we have this perfectly onboarded VP of sales. I do want to move to the deal itself and execute some deals. So two ways to really push deals over the line, discounting and pilots. If we start Mm -hmm. on discounting, I had a founder on the show the other day who said discounting today is almost table stakes. It's a no-brainer. How do you think about discounting? Well, I definitely don't think it's table stakes. I think the table stakes are knowing your value, knowing what this product is worth. If you don't know what that product will do with inside the organization that buys it, if you don't know how much money you're going to save them by offering them better healthcare benefits, like let's say you're a Zenefits or a Gusto and you're offering better HR management, if you don't know what that saves them, you don't know what they're currently paying an HR benefits person to do some of those activities, then you don't know. Then of course you're discounting because you actually don't know what their value is. Whereas if you know, hey, by adding these five seats, you're going to save over $200,000 next year and $500,000 a year after because we had a conversation about your strategic plan and I know what you need to do. Well, that's going to be $700,000 in savings or in benefit or kind of however it's framed. Then knowing that I think is table stakes, right? So the question of should you discount, like I think a lot of that decision is made in the room for that specific deal. But if you get into a place where you're discounting a bunch and your customers are all talking about it and they're coming and they're kind of expecting that, they might be expecting that for the wrong reasons. And it's a matter of just, it's time to learn about handling that objection and not just learning, hey, here's what our sliding scale is based on how much of a discount somebody asked for. Can I ask, you've worked with many early stage startups. Where do you see most go wrong with discounts? Well, one, assuming that they have to do it is part of it. But again, when they're in that sort of deal relationship and they're getting ready to finalize a deal and they instead say, you know, the customer says, all right, well, I want to make sure I get a good deal on this. And they go, great, I'll give you 5% off. If you're going to have to give a discount and you don't have that linked to a timeline or to some endpoint of, you know, what John Barrows calls the give and get, where you're doing a trade off for a specific place in the sales cycle, right? Like, let me give you an example where you'd say, all right, I can do this if we're going to be finalized by the end of the month, right? Now, a lot of founders, they hear that advice and they go, okay, well, I've got to say you get a 5% discount in May. Well, then the next month comes around and somebody's like, oh, well, you offered me this discount before. I know you can do it. And so now they just don't believe you. But if you instead kind of link those things to value in a trade-off and you say, hey, these are the things I can do instead of a discount, as long as we are signing by the end of the month, right? Like maybe I can highlight the way you're using the solution on my blog. That's really valuable to the person you're selling to sometimes. You know, they're becoming an industry thought leader by buying your design product. 
product. You know what, if we can do this right away, I can still get you in the cycle to promote you as part of this conference or, or do something else. I would way rather you give that same chunk of value than taking a big discount. But again, like you've got to do that as part of that trade-off so that there's appropriate tension in the deal relationship as opposed to just saying, sure, if you sign this, I'll give you X off. The other element though that we touched on was pilots and kind of the freemium version being those pilots. How do you yeah. think about the use of free pilots to onboard your first few customers? I think free pilots can be great as long as you're framing it as like, hey, this is this is the value you're getting and this is the value I'm getting. Again, with the trade-off, right? If, if I say, I'm going to do a free pilot, but I want us both to acknowledge how much this is worth for you. Let's take again the, the idea of you've got an, a product that's replacing a full-time employee somewhere, right? FTE and HR is making fifty to $70,000 and you've got a product that automates their job, let's say. Well, if you know what you're saving somebody, you say, all right, normally I'm going to charge $300 per month per seat. I'm going to give you two seats as part of this pilot, and you can get the customer buy-in to what that's worth. Then they become a real partner, and they understand what they're getting. Well, this happened for me. I was one of the first enterprise users of Yesware, and Matt Bellows did an awesome job of just saying, hey, you're going to be one of the first enterprise customers. You're going to get a sweet deal because here are all the features that are coming, and when they're all live, I'm going to come back and ask you for more money. And although that was sales guy to sales guy, it was still the way that he framed it was like a seasoned salesperson which of course Matt is. He's had a lot of time selling outside of being CEO. And so it, it was really framed correctly as like, you've got this, this massive discount for this pilot. This is the time that it's going to end. And this is the point when I need you back. You know, I tell founders all the time about an, another situation I was in where I was on the other side, I was selling and I had to give really just a sweetheart deal for a 90 day period. And I just wanted something to trade back. And I said, great, I can do that amazing price. Well, in this case, it was more of the discount than the free pilot, but it can be used in both cases. So great, I will do that for the first 90 days if you sponsor an on-site meeting with the other executives that control this budget. This is a VP of marketing and sales technology who had a VP of marketing whose budget was coming out of. And he was glad to oblige because he actually wanted us to come visit him on-site and make sure the product was going to scale for his needs. And we had a great on-site meeting halfway through that pilot. And it just meant that I could start the upsell process then. And upsell sounds like kind of a dirty word, but really he wanted more volume. He needed more. I needed more. And so we agreed that that would be an exchange for the way the pilot was going to run. But I do want to, before we dive into the quick fire, you mentioned earlier you're starting charity fundraising. I'd love to hear, are there any organizations that you're currently super excited for? Yeah, so right now I'm spending a lot of time helping out a group called Elite Meet. Elite Meet is an organization that started last year to help veterans who are transitioning from special forces into the workforce. And so they're coming out of Navy SEALs, Airborne Rangers, they're pilots, they are folks who are are very highly trained in some really specific things, but they also are, are brilliant operators doing a lot of other stuff. And so when I met these folks, I realized that it kind of broke my heart that we had highly trained military operators who were coming and trying to get jobs in the civilian workforce. And there were entry level security guard type jobs when really they want to be bankers. They want to come out and they want to do consulting work. They want to do operations. They want to go in and help sales teams. They want to do all the things that other career transitioning folks at nine to 10 years of experience experience doing elite jobs other places would want to do if they transition to tech. So I'm spending a lot of time with them and we have something we call commit to one, which is a commitment that you can make to to sponsor one of our elite meet vets into your organization, either to mentor them, either to come into your organization or just mentor them outside in a one-to-one relationship. So anybody who's looking for that, if you check out commit to one, there's a hashtag trending on LinkedIn where you'll learn about the organization or go to the website elite meet. Fantastic cause there, Ryan. Uh, I too am very passionate about kind of incorporating that into the workforce and the tech for workforce. So fantastic 
fantastic to hear. But I do want to move into my favorite being the quick fire round. So 60 seconds per statement. How does that sound? Okay, I'll try. So Lars Nilsson said on the show that SDRs are the most important function in sales. Do you agree and why? Well, I try not to disagree with Lars Nilsson ever. But Lars, I think he's saying that about bigger organizations, right? He's had five IPOs as a sales leader. When I think about kind of the heartbeat of the sales organization, I think about it coming from the founder who's learning to sell, learning the processes we talked about, figuring out about their customer before they hire the VP. And I think the most important function, when again, we're talking about seed and series A, is that founder understanding sales and being able to sell the right target. And then later on, the SDRs fall into place. You traveled 52,000 miles teaching sales in multiple, multiple countries to multiple different founders and teams. What were the big learnings in 60 seconds or less? Biggest learning for me is that founders outside the US are hustling because they often are building companies in their second or third language. So they're working sometimes twice, three times as hard as what we see here. And they're doing it without the funding safety net that I hear a lot of founders talking about here in the Bay Area where they'll say, oh, well, I'm just going to try this for a little while. I'm going to raise a little money. If that doesn't work, we'll either raise another round or we'll go do something else. And outside the US or outside the Bay Area, you don't really have that. You've got founders who are like, this is my life. This is what I'm doing. And they're, they're dedicated in a way that I don't see as much of here. And really, if you ever have the chance to spend time among the accelerators and like I was in Uruguay, I was in Kobe, Japan, I've spent time in Latvia and Turkey, like all these places, there are really interesting companies, really interesting founders coming out of there. Sales rep productivity, what's good and what's bad? I think bad is deciding that you're going to hire software to do your job for you, right? I think there's some things that you can automate, but you have to know why you're automating them. You have to know what message you want to get to the client before you decide that you're going to scale that message to a thousand emails at once. You have to decide what that right ideal customer is before you go and buy a lead list. You know, I see a lot of, whether it's sales reps or managers or founders who just say, oh, I'll just go buy a list of everybody who's in marketing and I'll email them. Well, that really gets away from understanding why that person needs your value. And if you can just boil it down to what are the actions that you want to take and you can do it manually for a few cycles, then you'll know what tools you need. If you are doing it manually and you realize that lead routing is a huge issue for you, bring in something like lean data. If you're doing it manually and you're searching for specific trigger events on LinkedIn and you're doing a heck of a lot of prospecting, then you go find somebody like Lead Genius or you build your own outsourced team to go and find those custom events that make a good customer. But do it yourself before you scale. And then final one, I'm very interested for this one. What do you know now that you wish you'd known all the way back to your time starting with AdRoll? Oh man, that is such a good question. I think that one of the things that I know is that it really just all comes down to the fundamentals. And it's so easy to say as a sales rep, that's not my job. My boss is supposed to tell me X. And you don't realize that your boss is actually doing a lot of other things. And so whether you're a sales rep, a sales manager, a director of sales, a VP or founder, putting it on someone else isn't something that you should ever do. You should always take ownership and say, all right, this is the initiative that I'm going to take to run my own book of business, to be thoughtful about the way I'm going to do my job. And if it means that someone's got to figure out the ideal customer, that might be you as an early SDR. Document the heck out of that and then share it with your team because that's going to make everybody better. It's not that you have to compete against them. Brian, as I said, I asked Lars, name me one person I should have on the show. He immediately said you. It's been such a pleasure and thank you so much for joining me. Oh man, that is the best. That's the best compliment coming from both you guys. So I really appreciate you having me on and uh, I look forward to seeing you again real soon.
What a phenomenal guest Ryan was to have on the show there. And if you'd like to see more from him, you can follow him on Twitter at JRyanWilliams. Likewise, I do want to say again a huge thanks to Lars, not only for providing the intro, but also some fantastic questions. I really do so appreciate that. Likewise, we'd love to see you behind the scenes here at Sasta. You can follow us on Instagram at hstebbings1996. It'd be great to see you there. But before we leave you today, email gets messy and complicated, especially with Google Groups and distribution lists. Front, the first shared inbox for Teams, makes it easy to manage your company's info at and help at email addresses. With Front, teams get back to customers faster with easy internal collaboration and clear owners so there's no confusion. Front also works with Twitter, Facebook, Twilio, SMS and live chat so your team manages everything in one place and never misses a message again. Today, companies such as Shopify, HubSpot, General Assembly and Y Combinator all use Front to help their teams work better together and you can sign up for a free trial today at frontapp.com. And thanks to my friends at WePay, let me introduce you to another very cool player in SaaS, JotForm. JotForm offers an easy-to-use online form builder for every business. People use the platform's drag-and-drop creation tool to develop gorgeous forms fast. Forms used to generate leads, conduct surveys, register guests, and much more. It also offers thousands of form templates and themes too, and you can learn more at JotForm.com. And to learn how you can grow your revenue with integrated payments, just like JotForm did, visit WePay.com forward slash SASTA, and WePay's got this really smart cheat sheet on how to get started with platform payments. Again, that's wepay.com forward slash Sasta. As always, we so appreciate all your support and look very forward to bringing you next week's episode.